Hello, hello, hello. My name is Jacob Miranda, an advanced doctoral student in the Experimental Psychology Program here at the University of Alabama, where I have a concentration in social psychology. And I'm Cassie Witt, a pedagogical assistant professor in the Department of Psychology at Western Kentucky University. Together, we are the hosts of Corrupting the Youth, a podcast about the teaching of psychology. If you love psychology, education, or both, then this is the podcast for you. And hello, 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 beautiful people. Welcome back to season two of Corrupting the Youth. I have high energy because I'm desperately remembering trying to how we do introductions in these podcast episodes. (laughs) It's been a hot minute since season one wrapped up. Yeah, I feel like this is one of those skills where it's like, if you don't use it, you lose it. I feel a little out of my element again recording. Oh, God, I'm going to feel out of my element editing again. I'm like, "Ah, how do I do this again? Like, Honestly, though, that's the hardest part. Mm -hmm. But hey, in our defense, the semester had ended. It was the summer and things got pretty busy pretty quickly. For me, I had to go see family and start preparing for a new summer class I never taught. And for you, you had a freaking place to move to and a job to that you're basically yeah. starting. Yeah, I defended my dissertation and passed. And then I moved in the same week and have like started working for my new job. So it's been a whole whirlwind of uh, activities this summer. I know that you've talked to me outside of this where it's like, They've kind of hit you up about like, hey, do you want to leave this club? Hey, do you want to leave this and that and the other? And I feel like that kind of comes with the territory because is it you're leading a psychi club or just like a general like psychology? Yeah, so I I am co-sponsoring or co-leading with another faculty member, the psychology club here at WKU. Um, I'm really excited about it. Like I've already been in touch with like the president of the club and they seem really excited about getting started in the fall. So I'm excited too. Nice. And have you ever like, have you been a president of a club before? Like, is this entirely new experience? You're kind of like learning along with them or do you already have like a vision of like how you want this to go? Like how fresh is this experience for you? Um, I mean, I was an officer in my own like psychology club, psychi chapter when I was an undergraduate student, but that was a long time ago. (laughs) And so I think getting back into the swing of things, um, is going to be a fun experience, but like, I feel like I'm also a little out of touch because I wasn't really too involved, um, with like undergraduate clubs as a graduate student. Like I mentored undergrads, like in our research lab, but as far as like advising a club or something, it's a totally new experience for me. I definitely concur. It's just like, what did I always envy those undergrads who are just like just top notch, just involved in everything and just mm-hmm. doing so doing the most. And I was just like, wow, I wish I had that energy. I know. Yeah. Well, as part of like my first year at my job, like I'm not required to do any service, but they presented this opportunity with me. And I was like, I feel like this is such an an easy way to like get to know undergrads or at least like the most like active undergrads in the department. Um, So I think it will be a good experience. 
good way to kind of get a pulse or a feel at WKU, right? Yeah, yeah. And just kind of be like, what is the climate here? Like, how interested are people? Do mm-hmm. are undergrad psych majors really wanting more? Are they content? Yeah. So all that jazz. Yeah. I mean, I also need to start, I guess, recruiting undergrads for my lab, which is super exciting. I still have to come up with a name for it. If anybody has any suggestions, let me know. All right. Well, if you're opening it up to suggestions and like what words must have, like no matter what the acronym is, like. I have no idea. I want to come up with. Epistemic. An E has to be in there somewhere. There has has to be an E there. And I'm thinking an M for meta science. Maybe you have a, W maybe for wit somewhere in there. Wit, yeah. yeah, that's that's a contender. An R maybe for um, reproducibility. So we have W, E, M, and R. It could be an O, throw a, another vowel in there, like something open science. I'll leave it up to I am definitely not the creative person. <laughs> yeah, I'm not really sure. <laughs> like, how do people do this? I feel like there's like acronym generators, right? Like you can Google that and just be like, type in these five words and we'll, we'll give you some yeah, suggestions. That could be an option. I just know I want to steer clear of S's and P's because I feel like there's so many acronyms in, within like social psychology where it's just like S's and P's. SPPS, SPSP. Well, I am, con- yeah, I'm constantly saying either SPSS, like the stat software wrong, because I'll say SPSP or like I'll mess SPSP up and say SPSS. It's a hot, it's a hot alphabet yes. soup of S's and P's. Yeah. So no, no word of science in there. And then there's notes. like triple SP, like the Society of Southeastern Social Psychologists. So there's SSSP. Oh, that's going to be interesting. Are you going to be getting involved in more like regional conferences um, as well? Or are you going to try to stick to like the big name ones now that um, you've kind of? I think I'll probably get involved in some smaller regional ones. Like when I was a student, and like an undergraduate student um, at Eastern Kentucky University, I presented at Triple SP. And then like there's like a Kentucky Psychological Association where like students, like they encourage undergraduate students to present at like that local conference. So like these are all ones like I'm kind of fortunately familiar yeah. with. Yeah. So yeah, I was thinking the same when I was in Texas and I like SWAPA. The mm-hmm. Southwestern Psychological Association yeah. was a regional one that yeah. was pretty popular. Yeah. Yeah, I totally love that. Of like, if and when, hopefully, I can get a decent job, like just finding the original ones and like, not everything has to be an R1 drastic multi level model thing from, you know, someone who's 18 years old and probably is already yeah. struggling to get the P value. And it's like baby yeah. steps. It's okay. Like, we can have like lower stakes to do good science and like, and traveling to conferences, especially like big international, national ones, is just so expensive. So it's like to be able to like get that conference experience, maybe on a smaller scale, like as an instructor or even like as an undergraduate student, like thinking about those that I'll work with, like it's still really valuable and fun. Yeah, I definitely relate to it. I can play one anytime it's outside of the USA, but like I now have a slight, not complete, but a very, very slight understanding and definitely a lot of empathy for like international scholars. Oh, yeah. Everything's in the like US and it's just like, 
well, I don't want to pay money and fly out. Like that's expensive to fly out to Georgia. Yeah. And I'm like, I live a couple states over. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, it's very expensive to even go there. I'm wondering too, if like the future of academic conferences is going to shift to this kind of like hybrid format, you know, which was something that really started in the wake of COVID. But now I think a lot of conferences, or at least the ones I've been looking at potentially attending this upcoming academic year are offering hybrid formats. So you can like go online or you can go in person. Yeah. I mean, I know like SP, SP, right? The Social Psychology and Personality Science Conference. Mm -hmm. They've been kind of trying to dabble with hybrid, even in the most recent like 20 it was 2022, I think, right? It was like in the spring or earlier that we went to. In February, yeah. Yeah, yeah in February. Um, it's kind of been a miss so far. Yeah. But like I know like they've been trying to do that because there's definitely people who now enjoy the online parts of it, especially if they can't make it. But I just also don't see like the in-person ever leaving. Yeah. So like I think hybrid's going to be the new norm. Yeah. Whereas it used to be only in-person exclusively. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like, I don't think going online is the same, but you still get access to like a lot of materials and talks and things. And for people who are international who want to come or like even in the US, but like can't really afford it, like at least there is that option. Mm -hmm. I mean, I just think conferences in general need to be reorganized of how the time is spent. Mm -hmm. And I feel like if that larger issue was taken into account, then like online would also be more worthwhile or easier to do. Yeah. Because like as it stands, it feels like everything's a lightning talk, even when they're not, you know, and obviously some of them are literally deemed lightning talks, but it's like regular presentations just don't feel, sometimes I feel like they miss their marker, like what what are supposed to be discussions or Mm -hmm. like networking opportunities is just getting lectured at. Yeah. And so like even an online format where you're like typing in questions and you're trying to inquire, like they're not even having time to respond to live audience questions, much less online ones. So that feels kind of like, uh... but yeah, Cassie, one of these days, maybe not this episode, but we're going to have to have just like a job talk episode where you give us all your sound advice. And I'm oh. definitely going to be taking out a pen and paper and taking notes because I'm scared. I'm terrified. I feel like now that I'm stepping up to the platform, Mm-hmm. And I'm like looking at job listings, mind you, currently with the time we're recording, this is what, July, 2022. Uh-huh. And I know people have told me, you have told me like, wait till September, wait till August, wait till those times where school year starts, that's when job postings go. But even the ones that are available now, it just feels like I'm not qualified for like 99.9999% of no. them. It's just like, oh my God, I want to cry. I'm like... <laughs> I mean, but like we had this conversation, like you're actually not qualified for a chunk of them because you're not a clinical psychologist. I know. That's why I'm just like, even if I want to, or like even like stretch it a little when one of the prerequisites is, can you teach uh, ABA therapy? I'm like, no, I'm not. (laughs) I can teach many classes. I can learn to teach many classes. (laughs) I think I would need a whole new degree. Don't stress out about those though. I mean, to me, like seeing all of those postings for clinical positions and being like, I'm not qualified to me is the same thing as like looking for jobs for being a dentist. 
I'm also not qualified for that. You know, like, it's just, it's not even, you're not even in that playing field. No, no. Well, that's fine. Just to work. What hurts is that it's lumped in with the same positions, right? Mm -hmm. So like, if there was a way to like click a check mark and like remove all those positions mm -hmm. and just only look at ones that were non-clinical mm -hmm. and at least the sites I do, they don't seem to have the functionality, but like, that'd be better. But like when you're like, oh, there are 500 job postings and then it's like assistant professor psychology and then you click it and then you read the job description and it's like yeah. and clinical. I'm like false hope. And then you do it again and again. To me, that's what kind of like, mm -hmm. but I get what you're saying. If it's, it's like a, uh, yeah, it's just not within the realm of possibilities, right? Like, I'm right. not going to be a psychiatrist. Well, at least not now. Never say never. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm not prescribing medication right now. We're going to be a clinical worker. Right. XYZ. But there are definitely things too. There was one school, though, and I think, I feel like this season, season two, I'm not sure if it's going to last just the fall. Or we're going to do fall and spring for a whole entire season, like a whole academic year. Uh -huh. But like season two is going to be the journey of Jacob down his anxiety. Well, just <laughs> trying to, like, you know, every two weeks or every month, you're going to hear like an update of like how I'm doing. And I'm like, so I'm... this is the beginning. This is early anxiety. This is me still preparing like my job materials. I mean... I think if we have grad students who are listening, though, like that can be really helpful because by the when we had started this podcast, I had already gone off the job market. Like I'd already accepted a position, like signed a contract and everything. So I think like from the very beginning, like hearing your experiences as you like prep job materials, submit applications, go to interviews, like go through like the negotiation process, like that will be oh, really helpful. <laughs> I always teach an idea like, hey, always negotiate. It's, you know, it can't hurt, right? Mm -hmm. And I feel like in the moment, though, I'd be like, I'd be so happy just to get any job that I'd be like, yeah, no, screw the <laughs> negotiations. Okay. If it's a tenured position that's teaching focus, like, yes. <laughs> you know what? Say la vie. I like, don't want to scare them away. <laughs> Even though I know I that's not possible, I know it. Logically. That's how I was when I got the call um, that I was accepted into the program at Alabama. Like Alexa called me and was like, I'm offering you a spot in the lab. And I was just like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I think that both you and I did do that, right? Or, yeah. <laughs> or it was just, she said that she just calls us randomly and she how how did the conversation go she i think it was the perception that like many faculty actually don't directly call mm -hmm. a person when they're accepting so there might be like an email or a formal i think email. it's usually like an email yeah yeah but alexis is the type of mentor who actually like directly calls you to you know you've been accepted yeah which i think and, yeah her concerns like oh i don't want to pressure you to say yes or anything by calling like that's her worry mm -hmm. and i think both you and i just without thinking or at least i know for me i was just like yes 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 100 yeah, times yeah. i mean I, knew, I already knew yeah i already knew i was like working with alexa that's my number one choice like mm -hmm. uh, i remember that so that was the first time she called me on her cell phone mm -hmm. right um and i only when I picked up and I'm like, hello, is this Alexa? She was wondering, she, I think I scared her a bit because she's like, how did you know? <laughs> right, because she hadn't given me her number. Yeah. And I'm like, it's okay. I know the Tuscaloosa areas. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I love that story. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. one thing that's definitely been helping me or what thing I'm currently working on right now is the teaching dossier. Mm -hmm. uh, 
specifically part of that is the teaching statement, which is pretty common upon job applications. And I think that for what you and I have been doing this summer, Cassie, like one of our side projects or side groups, if you will, outside of this podcast, podcast, I can't podcast. <laughs> Listen, we're just the power couple, Cassie. I can't help myself. We are. Um, but one of our side groups that we're in, and that's kind of been happening every year where I took the mantle this year, but I know you've taken it in past years. It's like a philosophy reading group, essentially, mm-hmm. where a theme is usually picked for the summer. And there's usually like three or four meetings once a month, right? So like, I don't know, June, July, August, May, I think is the one before June, right? So May, June, July, August. Um, And so in previous years, I think, like what was the first topic when like I first came here my first year? I think you and Alexa were both in charge of the theme and the articles. Was Uh, it? It was like the psychology, was it, did we do gender? That was last year. Yeah, so, gender was last year. And so, yeah, sure. so the first year that you were a part of it, it was like just a, generally epistemology. Mm-hmm. And yeah, then, that's true. Yeah, it yeah. was like very philosophical and like there's yeah. people from interdisciplinary, like, because we had people from what, I think one was from poli so I felt like I could be wrong. We had a couple mm-hmm. of philosophy faculty. We mm-hmm. had a communications faculty, mm-hmm. I think. Yep. Some clinical folks. So outside of our experimental program, we had some people like uh, Dr. Lynn Snow. Mm-hmm. I think she's was a regular. Like, yeah. 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 She's a regular. Um, and I'm bringing that up because for 2022, the theme was education and pedagogy. Yeah. And so like we've been reading and in fact, this is July. So this is our third out of the four meetings. Mm-hmm. Um, and we assigned, and we're actually going to meet with them later today. So we're like, we're going to double dip a little bit. for this <laughs> yeah. job running, And talk about the reading we had signed to the group. Um, and it was a book by Bell Hooks, right? Teaching yeah. to Transgress. Teaching to Transgress. Yeah, Bell Hooks, one of my favorite Kentuckians. Oh, is she a Kentuckian? I did mm-hmm. not know that. Yep, she was born in Kentucky and she was a faculty member at Berea College in Berea, Kentucky. I like how you moved up your glasses when you said that, just like, just for you to, like yeah. an anime character. Yeah. <laughs> Kentucky Pride. Kentucky proud, Kentucky proud. <laughs> I'm just like looking at my uh, fridge when you and when I visited you and your family in Kentucky. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's like that little pink heart with the unicorn on it. Yeah. I think it's it. like Kentucky is so gay. Yeah, I have that on my fridge too. So yeah, I keep it. I, I have that Kentucky in front. Yeah. Listen, if one of those jobs opens up in Kentucky, you and I, you can't get rid of me. I'm just going to be like a little kid following you. We're such, we're such a, we are such a power couple though. Like... Imagine us staying in proximity. <laughs> it'd be fun for me. I think it'd be a headache for you. would <laughs> be like, damn it. I, li- I went to another state. I went back to my home state and he found me. I think he would like it here. I'm going to, I'm going to keep my fingers crossed. You never know what can happen. Listen, I'd consider it. Um, I don't want to say the places I'm not considering because eventually those places might offer me a job. Yeah, you and this episode's going like, to come on me. It's like, so you never wanted to live in our state, huh? <laughs> but like, listen, I'm going everywhere from like Alaska to what's the last uh, alphabet in the world? It's like Wisconsin? Wisconsin, Wyoming. Wyoming, there you go. Yeah. W-I, so throughout yeah. the whole alphabet, internationally, hey, Japan, hey, UK. I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm not sure if you're looking internationally, but yeah, I don't think I applied for any jobs outside of the U.S. 
Maybe one in Canada. One in Canada? I'd be down for Canada. Yeah. Get that universal health care. Yeah, that would be nice. I was recently listening, or no, I, I'm going to get distracted and go on to another side. The whole reason, though, is because I wanted to talk or spend today's episode on teaching to transgress. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we could start from a couple of different ta- um, ideas. But essentially, one of our earlier readings before Bell Hooks was um, a guy named, how do you pronounce his name? I think it was what? Paolo Friere? Yes, it's F-R-I-E-R-E, Freire, Freire. So Paolo Freire, who's a Brazilian um, pedagogical thinker and someone who Mm -hmm. inspired Bell Hooks. One of his readings was essentially like critical uh, pedagogy or teaching. Pedagogy uh, of the oppressed. Pedagogy of the oppressed, in which he argued that pedagogy and education is like liberation right mm-hmm. but it's a certain form of liberation where both the oppressor and the oppressed themselves help one another simultaneously right and the only path through liberation so again trying to deal with colonialized issues trying to think of like a very male dominated white like a dominant culture perspective, a very Western perspective. Right. It's instead of just the oppressed revolting and thinking that they know best, as well as just the oppressors thinking that they know best, it right. actually takes like a collaborative work of like, you need people from both camps mm-hmm. to acknowledge like, hey, we are equal. We are like human beings. We're individuals. We're free. And currently the system is not set up that way. Right. And we need to work together to one, acknowledge our own biases and our own contributions to the system, um, specifically more from the oppressor end, um, and how we can basically learn from one another. Mm-hmm. And so with that background, Bell Hooks basically cites Freire quite a bit and basically expands upon his work in what she might call uh, transformational pedagogy. Yep. Um, or basically her goal of education is teaching to transgress. The purpose of education is that it's supposed to help us be free or to find freedom. And I think in many ways, that means like the point of education is to help individuals become self-actualized so that they can like fight against societal norms or like fight against the reinforcement of racist stereotypes. Yeah, I would agree with that. I know when she talked about self-actualization, which she does a bit, mm-hmm. I at least how I interpret it was usually in the frame of the teacher, um, basically saying that teach themselves lack self-actualization. Mm-hmm. And if they themselves lack self-actualizations, then they are then basically ineffective as teachers. They lack basic communication skills. Right. They're like drug addicts. They're I like know. she goes off yeah. on teachers quite a bit of just like her basically starting off from being very, very young and having at a predominantly black school, black teachers mm-hmm. who told her to critically think, to challenge systems that engaged her and excited her to slowly going into um, desegregated schools or being forced to go into white schools, right? And learning that like, instead of working on your mind, body and spirit, right? So like the kind of like this personalized type of education, white education is more about the banking system, which I think yeah. Freire uses, right? Yeah, the banking system. So you want to talk a little bit about that banking system, Cassie? Well, it's just like such a, a big theme in teaching to transgress where she 
essentially is saying like the banking system or the banking model of education is this idea that students are essentially like these empty containers and they're simply supposed to sit in the classroom, consume information that their instructors throw at them and then regurgitate it. Like that, according to this banking model is what education is. When Hooks is saying that, no, we need to be more critical with our pedagogy, right? We need to look at learning as a form of liberation. Yeah, those words come up quite a bit. Learning is liberation. Yeah. Um, and I feel like that resonated with me because I think that's what something you and I have talked about without having the term banking system. Mm -hmm. So it's always cool to kind of see like ideas or people even a decade, two decades, three decades ago, right? And again, Bill Hooks isn't that old, but like mm -hmm. just her, Freire, talking about like education should not be about memorizing facts, depositing these random facts into a person. And then learning is when you can go into your piggy bank and pull out that random fact and vomit all over it, right? Yeah. Basically like have intellectual diarrhea and just like shit all the facts. I'll be like, oh my God, I learned like, that's not really. Yeah. And one thing that I love like about Bell Hooks so much is that she writes and she's clearly an academic and intellectual, but like within like this sort of like philosophical framework or these arguments she is making like she's so good at like interweaving personal narrative so like sharing these like anecdotes and like stories about herself and her own experiences that make it feel that make it easier to like resonate I think you know so she like talks about um and teaching to transgress like some of her own experiences as a student and how like she loved school so much and it was like where she says like it was a place where she could like reinvent herself and like discover herself through different ideas. And I think like education should be that, like students should be excited about school, about education because it helps them learn how to like view the world or like understand themselves. Not just like you said, like this regurgitation of, of facts. No, definitely. And I think one that basically is, I see that as her attempt to practice what she preaches, right? Because later on, she'll talk about how one way to, well, how, how I took what teaching to transgress meant or what the goal was. And I got this from like a page seven. So if anyone ever gets the book, but this idea that it's to teach with a desire to encourage excitement again mm -hmm. in the classroom and not just excitement about the knowledge topic. So like not that particular topic alone, but excitement in general about the learning process as a whole. Yeah. Um, and basically there's this really good, good quote. Um, I don't have it in front of me, so I might butcher it. So forgive me if I don't say the page number, but basically she's saying that we have like an education crisis mm -hmm. where teachers don't want to teach yeah and students don't want to learn yeah um and she's like that's the time in a period where like you have a bunch of professors who just like don't want to be a you know students who are like i'm just here for my degree yeah. and to her how she phrases it is a crisis and so one way that she says to transgress to teach with transgression is using personal anecdotes and making oneself vulnerable right if you're expecting students to build a community right to have this honest, open discussions, these critical discussions about the topics and tie it in with the real life, you basically have to build rapport, right? You have to build a community of respect. Yeah. And she basically says the teacher has to be the first one to demonstrate, right? You can't expect students to do something that you wouldn't do yourself. Yeah. And she shares a lot of these intimate personal stories and sometimes failings and sometimes negative thoughts about her students with us as a reader. Yeah. 
because I think I don't sure I see the parallels of her trying to be like here's just who I am in the midst of her argument which yeah I think that reading teaching to transgress feels so validating for me because these are these are really things that you and I talk about all of the time like I know we have said in multiple episodes like the importance of like humanizing yourself for your students or like creating community or even like being vulnerable with your students and it really just is it, it's just so nice to hear like the bell hooks talk about talk yeah. about those things too for me it's always validating about like sometimes you know when you're having like a bad day teaching and you just mm-hmm. get really frustrated and you're like oh my god what am i doing are the students mm-hmm. even getting something they don't seem to care at all um or like even some students who might like resist certain like new pedagogical attempts you know yeah. and basically anything that's not just a straight up being lectured at sometimes yeah. students can be resistant to that and she has this quote where it says, I have found throughout the years that many of my students who bitch endlessly while they take my class contact me at a later date to talk about how much that experience meant to them and how much they learned. It's, uh, it's just like, that's kind of like, I'm not sure I read that. And she's just like, where even she has her like frustrations of just like in yeah. the moment of like, I'm trying really hard to make you critical thinkers. And I'm definitely not feeling appreciated in the moment. Yeah. But she'll talk about how one of her biggest milestones as a teacher is that 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 desire that secret desire that all teachers have of wanting to be liked and appreciated and inspiring that sometimes that's not always up front and center and it's not always going to happen during the semester that you're teaching yeah and you really shouldn't be teaching to transgress you shouldn't be teaching for excitement you shouldn't be teaching these skills for that motivation right. but she was very open about like how it took her time because she still obviously had that desire to want to be liked and to be appreciated mm-hmm. and that's something i was just like oh yeah i, I definitely felt there where like sometimes it's okay i'm like listen i'm trying to help you right now <laughs> like yeah. i know right now it doesn't seem like it but i really am trying yeah it really is such a I don't even know if it's like a secret motivation for me. Like I'm very upfront. Like I want my students to like me and it is, it is difficult in the moment to like overcome that. Mm-hmm. Especially like when you're teaching, just kind of getting like the blank stares. Like, ah, yes. yes. Mm-hmm. As she talks about like her education journey, what I find interesting though, it's because she actually started off with her talking about the time, like the week before she was going to get tenure. Mm-hmm. And how she was having these dreams, these dreams of, I forget if it was drowning, it was part of it, but also just outright dying. Right. And a lot of people might assume that she's having these kind of fears or these nightmares because out of a fear of not getting tenure. Mm-hmm. And she actually says it's quite the opposite. This is what I'm fearing that happens if I do get accepted as tenure. Right. And then she fast forwards a week and she's like, I, I, I just perceived it. And all I feel is this empty void, this depression Mm -hmm. that's filling me up because I feel like academia is a prison of sorts that's going to like stifle me and drown me and not liberate me. Yeah. And then kind of like going, that's how she starts off the chapter one. And then she starts talking about how as she moved away from high school, like 10 of these white schools, and she started going to undergrad and then eventually graduate school. I think that's kind of how she describes her journey of why she treads it where you basically have, I think she said like emotionally stunted professors who have no communication skills. She straight up drags the academy, (laughs) like academia, like she drags it as she probably rightfully should, you know? Um, Yeah, she she pulls no punches. 
I'm pretty sure she did say like emotionally stunted professors. Mm-hmm. That lack basic communication skills. Yeah. Yeah. She had like a whole section where she was like, this is what made them bad where she was like they yeah lacked basic communication skills they weren't self-actualized they often used the classroom to enact rituals of control that were about domination and the unjust exercise of power Mm -hmm. and she talks about this idea that many professors in higher education use their classrooms as like i think she calls them like as their mini kingdoms Mm, i have that quote too Yeah, where they just like create all of these rules and then their class is about making students obey, you know? Which I think is interesting even up to graduate school. Like I felt like, or at least in through her description, I felt like it got progressively worse the higher the education or the degree that she was pursuing. Yeah. Which is like, damn. I mean, something else that really resonated with me in teaching to transgress to at least in the sections that we read is like she sort of touches on this idea of the incentive system in academia, which we have an episode about as well. And she talks about how in academia, teaching just isn't valued enough. Like she says at one point, like teaching is seen as this dull, like less valuable part of what it means to be an academic. And I think that's what has really led to that crisis that you mentioned earlier, where students don't want to learn, teachers don't want to teach. It's because teaching isn't valued in the way that it probably should be. And speaking of just like larger issues at play, I kind of want to return to the topic, which again, I think is like a pivotal topic for her, is this idea of teacher self-actualization. Mm-hmm. So basically she argues that well-being, so unlike feminist perspectives on pedagogy or even Freire's perspective of critical pedagogy, what she found lacking in both of them is that they focus on like how the mind should work, but no one really focused on the individual, the teacher's own well-being. Yeah. Um, I forget the name, but she quotes this a Vietnamese Buddhist who talks about teacher as a healer. Yeah. You can't heal other, it's one of those ideas of like, you can't help other people unless you've kind of worked on yourself first, yeah. right? Like you can't heal other people if you yourself are unhealthy. Yeah. Um, and so like the self-actualization, she mentions how like people in academia want to separate, separate and segregate the private life versus the public life, right? Like who I am at my job is not who I am as a person. Uh, what I want to say in public is not what I want to say in private right. or vice versa, I should say. And she said that that's an issue that's causing like, she doesn't say our mental health issues, but I think that's kind of like what she's going for. It's just that this whole system is so screwed up and people are not caring about themselves. And again, this fascination from self-actualization that in certain respects that when you when you have students open up and tell their own stories and start questioning pedagogy and start questioning authority as it's traditionally done, mm-hmm. that someone who's not self-actualized actually sees that as even more so a threat. Like even though that themselves might be a process to help them heal yeah. and start questioning things in their own lives, there's like almost a fear of like, nope, I'm going to shut this down. We're not going to enable this. Um, it's seen as basically like it's essentially a loss of power, and that loss of power mm-hmm. can be scary, right? It's loss of control. Yeah. yeah. And to me, that spoke out to me because like it's a very positive psyche vibes. 
um, with self-actualization of like, what does it mean to be the best version of you, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I think, yeah, I think sometimes though, like being like a self-actualized teacher or like attempting to be a self-actualized teacher who teaches to transgress can be kind of exhausting though, especially like when you are like working and teaching in a system where that is not the norm. So it's like students are extremely, I think, resistant to a lot of changes in the classroom or like these types of formats where you're like, I'm trying to educate you to like teach you critical thinking or to like help liberate your mind, you know, like I don't want you to just like memorize a bunch of stuff and like students aren't used to I think an environment where the instructor is like I'm not an authority figure I think compassionate teaching is often very exhausting you know so like this whole idea of like teacher as healer or as like Hooks describes, like when you're a teacher, you should care about the mind and the soul of your students, you know, and like you're like a caretaker of them. And, but I think that's exhausting, you know? So I, so I think it's important, you know, and I do in many ways, like this idea of like teacher as healer, like that idea resonates with me. But I also wonder like, how do you kind of like balance like being the healer or being there for your students versus like being there for yourself? Because I think like when you're run down and when you're exhausted, like you, you aren't really the self-actualized best version of yourself. Right. And I don't think anyone, at least that I know would say like that you will ever reach self-actualization, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's a process of constant like pursuit or a constant right. journey. So it's never in of itself an end goal. I would say what you made me think of was something she touches upon in later chapters, but I think she has a fear that teaching transgress, especially if you come from like this more progressive perspective where everyone's saying we need to be multicultural, multi-ethnic, diversity type teaching. It's that she talked about the first time she actually entered a diverse classroom. So basically, you know, she's been teaching, I think she teaches English primarily, um, but it's predominantly white students. Right. And she said when she first entered a classroom where it wasn't all white and it was generally actually diverse, diverse, that she struggled immensely. And she actually faced the most struggles or pushbacks from those students compared to the majority of white students. And so, like, she reflects on this, how in order for pedagogy to work, it has to be adaptive to mm-hmm. that unique classroom. And then if you come from a classroom that has multiple cultural backgrounds and you yourself haven't put in the work to understand those cultures, to adapt to those cultures, to carry your teaching to that classroom, then that, that can scare people away. And basically she marks about how a young faculty or junior faculty were early in her career very gung-ho about cultural diversity and we're going to bring diversity into the classroom and we're going to bring diversity teaching which might seem similar to you know some institutions we've been at Mm -hmm. right it's definitely something similar to ucr to my master's program to here in the ua program right like how do we include diversity in our teaching Um, and for her it's always rung hollow because people actually don't want to put in the work right like they like the idea of cultural diversity but how it often manifests and what she kind of feels reports feeling discouraged by is what that manifests as, as a professors having like one or two not even two just like a single lecture on like race or a single lecture 
on gender. And it's usually squeezed in at the very end of the semester where it's quickly forgotten and people aren't really paying attention. Yeah. And that's kind of like a token. I don't want to say token, but like token lecture mm-hmm. to say, like, see, I've included, is this, you know, is this enough to cover cultural diversity? Mm-hmm. Um, and she even talks about like hating that framework of asking, is this enough? Am I doing enough? Yeah. Because like enough is never enough. Like if you're framing the question of like, what's the least amount of work I can do, that's enough to meet some sort of arbitrary quota. Yeah. Then you miss the larger point of what it means to teach critically, to yeah. incorporate the isms into it. <clears throat> so I know you were kind of talking to a point of like, sometimes when instructors try to do this type of process, it can just be emotionally exhausting, which I agree with. Mm-hmm. But I also, I guess what she meant reflect is I'm uncertain how many people actually would be capable of dealing with a truly diverse classroom if they were exposed to it, yeah. right? Like here at UA, it's predominantly white students. Like that's yeah. not like a secret. It's University of Alabama. Yeah. Versus like if you go to a historically black college, if you go to a Hispanic serving institution, go to any university in California, right? Mm-hmm. Where the demographics are all like 15 to 20%, 10 to 15, 20% of all races everywhere. It's like a good even just like a split around. Mm-hmm. Like how you teach in Kentucky, would that be necessarily the same as how you teach in California? And I feel like it would be, I don't say more challenging, but like just because you're used to teaching or caring to like one type of student, when you're exposed to completely different types of students, you're like, oh God, are all like, are my examples worthwhile? Are well, my, I mean, how I relate to them, the activities? Like, yeah, I don't anticipate there being a huge difference in like, students at Alabama and like students at my institution in Kentucky, but it is something I'm kind of nervous about, you know, like I've prepped classes and like taught classes to like this specific demographic of student. And it's like, what if they're vastly different, you know? Yeah, everything you say, they just look at you for an eyebrow raise. And right. you're like, what? You know, what do you mean? What if they, what if they don't like me? <laughs> Yeah, I wonder if she ever got, she says she got over the fear, but I feel like that's just such a hard thing to overcome or like just getting used to like being disliked, but having still faith in your own pedagogy to continue forward. Yeah, having faith in your own pedagogy is something else though. I feel like I'm still, which I guess I haven't been teaching that long, but you know, like I still swing back and forth between like, oh, I'm so good at this and like, oh, I'm the worst yeah some days it just feels bad yeah it some feels days so you're just bad. Like, like i have that. no idea what i'm doing and what's worse yes i have a bad assessment or barometer of that because mm-hmm. sometimes i feel like on the worst days i perform for some of the lectures they love the most and i'm like yes. this yeah, wasn't it- a good lecture like you all don't know behind the scenes yeah it's so funny when that <laughs> uh-huh, <laughs> definitely not <laughs> infuriating <laughs> Um, another thing that I felt like really emerged in this book is she also, she particularly, I feel like targets women's studies professors. Mm-hmm. And every time she mentions women's studies professors, she always adds a caveat, like in parentheses, which are mostly white women. Yeah. And she basically says mostly white women, blah, blah, blah. And she talks about like the resistance of something where she would argue is supposed to be the most progressive or the most likely to adopt these principles of teaching to transgress, of getting students excited, of personalizing the classroom, of getting to know them. Um, and she talks about how specifically white feminists in academia are the ones who almost seem like to blockade 
that fact the most or like those are her most avid critics yeah and i was wondering i was kind of like interested on your perspective of that because i feel like it's not the first time i've heard that from like other readings we've had where Mm -hmm. there seems to be like almost a critique of white feminists in particular where a lot of white feminists and people who are women's studies professors will write about the black experience or write about a person of color's experience without acknowledging like their own whiteness or like they're kind of afraid to be like oh by the way i'm a white woman who's saying this and let me very disclose that and so, like, I know she talks a little bit later about in the book about, like, how she's talked to both white women and black women who are both feminists. And she goes to white feminists and says, how do you feel like the bridge between black women and white women? Like, has there been progress on those issues, right? Mm-hmm. Like, are people able to talk? And white feminists would be say, yes, there's mm-hmm. been change, there's been growth. And then she'll talk to black feminists and says, has relations with white men improved? And they'll say very little to none. Yeah. And what she finds more interestingly is that when she talks to more poor, lower SES white women, so to not the academics, not the women's studies professors, but just like your average Jane, mm-hmm. that they tend to resonate more with the Black experience and understanding of being oppressed yeah. than like a white academic feminist. Yeah. And I just thought, I thought that was really interesting of, because it makes me think of the ivory tower bit, right? Mm-hmm. Of just like, we're saying we're really caring. We're saying we're trying to relate to the people, but like, it makes me think sometimes of how far, because I come from a very low SES background myself. I had to work several jobs to get my way through undergrad. I got very lucky and I'm very fortunate for the people in my life to be here. But I'm also concerned, I'm not sure if you've ever reached this concern of, regardless of my background, as I'm getting better or more and more advanced education and getting degrees when is that transition of like i have to acknowledge like okay i have an elite status here mm-hmm. or at the very least i'm an academic elite who might start being able to or like have you ever thought about it? like that's what it made me think of like because i i would imagine that many of those white feminist professors to ask them like if you were to ask them before and like do you feel out of touch do you feel like you're actually doing good work they're like no i am doing good work like this is a these social issues are really passionate and ones that impact me personally and I want to get involved, right? Like, I don't think they would see themselves as out of touch. But it definitely feels like from Bell Hooks and other Black female academics, like that's a point that they always bring up. It's like, these elites think they're in touch, but they're not. And I worry about that. Hopefully that makes some sense. But like, Yeah, no, that makes sense. And I think that... Yeah, like, I when am I out of touch, Cassie? I don't know. Or like, I'll go back to my life family and they're like, you don't know how our life works anymore. And I'm like wait what yeah yeah it's like how do you not lose that perspective I guess you have to be like really cognizant of it and like active and like engaging with other people so that you know you don't lose touch you know so it's like but mm, I don't know there have to be I'm sure like the way she describes it at least like in these women's studies departments like there were like black women also working in that department and it's like you have to be open to like what they are saying their experience is, you know? So like, clearly like that was a case where they were not, and I'm no like feminist scholar. Um, but I think like traditionally like feminist movements, you know, like I always think about like women's suffrage. The first like, wave. Yeah. Yeah. Like in like the early 1900s where it was like women deserve, you know, the right to vote. We deserve, you know, in the United States, like we want to be counted as like full citizens who have these, these rights. Um, And, you know, the 19th amendment 
was ratified in 1920. So like women got the right to vote, but they were wealthy white women. Like black women didn't get the right to vote until 1965. 1965. That's 45 years later. Um, And so I think, I think it is an issue in like the feminist community where like many white feminists like don't think about like the intersectionality of identity, you know? So it's like when they're talking about like women's rights and feminism, like they have white women in mind and they're not thinking about the experiences of black women or, or, you know, trans women. You just remind me of something where um, prior to that first wave, like suffragettes Mm -hmm. um, in the 1800s, there was this woman named Sojourner Truth. Mm -hmm who was a black, I'm not sure she would call herself a feminist because this was like almost pre feminist but she was basically saying feminist ideals. Mm-hmm. Um, and what you remind me of is she gave this very, very famous speech called Anti a Woman. Yep. Right, and I actually played that most recently in my History of Sight class oh, nice. where we had like a modern day or like rendition of it. So I forget who the famous person was, but like they were giving that speech mm-hmm. of talking about like, you're saying these women are delicate, that women need to be protected at all costs, can't get dirty. And she's like, but you're just talking about white women in carriages, like, because black women of the time were beasts of burden, right? Like they were seen as labor. They were seen as, she's like, nobody treats me like this anti-woman, yeah. right? Like no one treats me delicately. No one cares about me. And it's because, you know, a black woman. And I bring that up because I think Bell Hooks, not in this book, but she has like a separate essay, right? Mm-hmm. Where like that's the starting title as well. It's yep. almost paying homage to that of like anti-woman, black yep. feminism. And I feel like uh, many feminists today, like if you were to ask them where the roots are, maybe many of them, well, um, hopefully many of them can go back to the suffragettes, right? Um, and not just like the civil rights in the 60s. But like, I'm not sure many would even know about Sojourner Truth and how it's rooted in black feminism and in black womanhood that kind of were the seeds of it all. Yeah. Um, which makes it kind of sad. Like, I try to teach about that, but like, and people are always like, oh, what, really? And I'm like, yeah. There's this, uh, as an aside, a fun uh, survey that asked people, has the women's rights movement done anything for you? And like, they asked a bunch of women's, right? So like, has feminism done anything for you? And I think 45% said no. Um, and then, <laughs> so like 45% of women were like, nah, it's done nothing for me. Um, and then of that 55%, I think only 10% mentioned um, the women's right movement gave us the right to vote, <laughs> which I'm like, I would assume would be a biggie. Like, you know, it might be like a small thing that people might mention. Goodness. But like, I, for me, I, again, maybe this is kind of where a point where I'm out of touch and what I was learning when I was teaching is just It's about a third of my class identifies as feminists and about half of them. Um, and again, I create a community of respect. So like people were comfortable sharing this. There was no right. like hostility, but like about half said like, I'm actively like, I'm not a feminist and do not identify with. Yes. Oh my right? God. And I- there's some people who like, who don't raise their hands. So I don't know either mm-hmm. way. But it's like the image that conveys to what they think of feminists is versus when you actually learn about the historical context of it, vastly different. And I'm like, I was about to ask you though, have you ever asked your classes at UA, like how many of them identify as feminist because it's mind blowing, but I think it is just like this misconceptualization of what it means to be a feminist. Mm -hmm. Like, I think in like this idea that feminists just like hate men and like burn bras in the streets is just like 
still so pervasive. Like, I don't know, like, where this came from. Well, there are bad, I don't want to say maybe not bad faith actors, but there are activists out there, political activists out there, who claim the identity of feminist mm-hmm. and who actively hold signs that we must kill all men. Yeah. Right. And like, I think that when you think of Fox News or when you think of conservative yeah. things, those are the people who get exposed on TV, right? These people who stereotypically have like these bright hair, blue or red hair, right? And these big signs that said death to all men. And they're like, mm-hmm. this is what a feminist is. And if that's what your family's told you what feminism is, and you generally believe like men and women, right, are equal, deserve equal pay, all that, and you hear women are now superior to men you might be like, feminism sounds awful. Yeah. And I'm like, historically, like that's by definition, that's not what feminism is. That's not what the progressive ideals are. Like, that's not feminism. Yeah. But like, as soon as I showed the picture of that prominent advocate, they're like, yeah, that's what a feminist is. I'm like, no, it's no, it's not. But like, that's what gets called into mind. Yeah. And so like reading about her idea of like, we're taking a feminist perspective, we're taking a critical perspective. I also have to be kind of so like anyone who might pick up and read this book might have those notions of like what feminism mm-hmm. is. And they're like, this right and there's almost like a how do you because obviously she doesn't explain hooks doesn't explain it that way but if you're coming in with that mindset it might be a bit difficult to read or might be like confusing to read of like when she's talking about this critical feminist perspective yeah it's like how do you deconstruct like that misconception about what feminism is referring to especially she tends to like use like the terms like feminist thinking but also just like words like radical (laughs) Right. You know, she's like radical pedagogy. Um, it's like, what exactly are you trying to say about looks? I think she's trying to say we need to do better. But the status, <laughs> yeah. if it's radical to go against the status quo, then we need to go a bit radical. Yeah. Yeah. I guess like that is something like to talk about. Like, what exactly is, what does she mean when she says radical pedagogy? Is it just like going against... I like, think how involves, do you be a radical teacher? I think it involves a couple of things. I think one is going against the banking system, which is the mm-hmm. status quo. Mm-hmm. I think it involves individualized consideration. Yeah. So she really talks about getting to know students at a personal, and I think she used the word intimate quite a bit. Like mm-hmm. you need to get to know them at an intimate level, know, know them for who they are. Right. Um, as well as avoiding like cookie cutter, Basically, her idea is flexibility, right? Like you as an instructor, if you're coming in with 110% of the lecture concretely planned out about how exactly everything is ready to go and how the class is going to be and what slides are going to happen at what times, and you're not leaving any room for discussion, any room for them to provide input, and then most importantly, adapting to that input, right? And that's where the flexibility comes in. Yeah. If you've already kind of have a roadmap that's concrete about like how the lecture's gonna go, that's that's not radical. That's you still wanting to be in control mm-hmm. rather than having an authentic conversation when people are trying to tie it to their real lives. Yeah. I I do think that makes me think though, she also at one point in teaching to transgress, like has a discussion about how teaching is a performative act. Oh yeah, I saw that. I thought of you when I read that because I know that stood out. Yeah, which is like something that I say all the time um, and think about all the time. But it's like, there is, I think like sort of this opposition between like thinking about like teaching as a performative act, but then like also engaging in this authentic kind of teaching 
where it's like, if you're being performative, how are you like simultaneously being authentic, you know? So it's like kind of like balancing like this role between like being an entertainer, but also being like a healer. Right. I think she mentioned that on page 11, Mm -hmm. where I like how she phrases it. It's how she sees performative. It's this idea that if it helps with the framework that your students are an audience, Uh that any good performer has to engage their audience and cater to that specific audience. So, for example, you have a class at UA versus a class at WKU. Right. right. Those are two unique audiences that you need to cater to. Mm-hmm. And she basically writes where we are teachers are not a spectacle, but we're a catalyst that calls everyone to become more and more engaged, to become active participants in learning. Like so that. it's almost like a performance that's improv that mm-hmm. involves the audience to come on board mm-hmm. rather than how she phrases a spectacle. Right. You're right. not just a performer who's performing and edutainment and getting people to laugh. Right but you're someone who's like going to audience and bringing them onto stage and then having them have the spotlight and encouraging that and making it that type of way. I like um, at least how I think about it as, or I like how she phrased the performed aspect of that because she tries to be very clear. Like it's not just a, you're yeah. just not a show, right? You're not like a ticket people show up to. Yeah. It's not like you're some like form of like, what's the thing the kids talk about all the time now? Like parasocial relationships. I like how you're saying the kids as if you're yourself done. <laughs> You and I have talked about parasocial relationships. Yeah. Well, what I'm saying is like in the classroom, it's not like a parasocial relationship, right? You're like actually like they're engaged with your students. Like there, it can be a two-way relationship. To me, that's what makes it even more interesting. So it's not, it was outside of our chapter readings, but like it was chapter 13 out of 14. Mm -hmm. And it was, I can probably pull up the PDF so I don't make a fool of myself, but it's something called along the lines of like, eros or eros i don't know the term you want to and eroticism in the classroom yeah and so like she talks about intimate but also like intimate intimate with like students of like openly loving students and declaring love for students and having students openly declare love for the teachers as well Mm-hmm. And making that the norm, which I thought was a little bit more like I was like, oh, well, um, and she basically talks about how that's taboo, right? Where it falls under suspicion, especially nowadays, we're telling, where like if you have students saying like how they love their teacher, or if you have a teacher go up to students, like I love having you as a student, I love enjoying this, this idea of like love, of this passion, of this kind of that intimate nature, like there's a lot of institutional barriers that kind of want to like put a wall, right, of but like you're a teacher's. At what point does that become like taboo though? You know, because I think about. That's a good question. I don't think she fully answers. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you know, like I have friends who are elementary school teachers and they are constantly like, oh, I love my students. Their students are constantly like, oh, I love this so-and-so. Oh, that's true. Yeah. You know, and it's like, Mm -hmm. at at what point does like that building that kind of relationship suddenly become a (laughs) no-no? I feel like that starts hitting around like middle school, high school. Yeah. Right. Like middle school's angst and then high school's like mm, high school teachers stay with. Um, how does she phrase it? Understanding that Eros is a force that enhances our overall effort to be self-actualizing, that can provide an epistemological grounding informing how we know what we know enables both professors and students to use that energy in a classroom setting to invigorate discussion and excite the imagination. So she actually doesn't like back away down even from like sexual energy. Yeah. Like, and she basically says like, don't act on it. 
but like you could acknowledge it and basically use that libido based energy. Damn. Yeah, I was just like, oh, um, she talks about this one student she had who, oh, what was the name? O'Neill La- Ron Clark in 1987. We had a passionate teacher student relationship. He was taller than six feet. And I remember the day he came to class late, came up to the front, picked me up and whirled me around. The class laughed and I called him a fool and laughed. Um, but yeah, this idea of like students just like picking you up and swirling around the classroom. Like, I feel like even for, Cassie, I feel like if a guy did that to you, you'd be like, oh, um, hell no. I like, mean, okay, like, so I had, yeah, I don't know about students touching me, but that's like, yeah, see, like, so there's yeah, not, like, I had I'm a student, sure there's everything I'm comfortable with what Bell Hooks is saying, but like, yeah, yeah, like I had a student like put his hand on like the small of my back one time and I was like, don't touch me. <laughs> <laughs> Pulls out a knife. She's like, <laughs> yeah, so yeah, that's not for everybody, but yeah, because she references the movie um The Dead Poet Society. Yeah. And basically she's like, that's a that's lovely, but in real in the real world, that would be actively discouraged and frowned upon of having oh, a teacher absolutely. that passionate yeah. of exciting the young boys about poetry. Yeah. And getting them to love love and love life. Yeah. She would be like that. That's an animus administrative no no. Like yeah. you, you don't do that. You get sued. Yeah. Um, which I think also goes into like the systems we're working in. She's like, we have this idea, this romantic idea, this almost precious sacred value of what a teacher can and should be. Mm-hmm. But there are also like real world constraints upon that. They're hindering. Yeah. And I'm not. Yeah. And I guess what I'm trying to figure out like are those constraints. Because I feel like she's making the arguments like those constraints are bad. Mm-hmm. And I guess my question is like, are they necessarily bad though? Like, because I guess I'm trying to guess what those alternatives would be, right? Yeah. Where it's just like, I'm not sure. This is where the cynic in me comes out. And maybe Hooks would chastise me of like, no, you know, we have to work towards it. It's okay. Um, but that's where I start getting uncomfortable with kind of like what she uh, advocates for. I don't know. It's an interesting idea. Mm-hmm. Well, to me, one of the most interesting ideas that she proposes um, is that the classroom isn't or shouldn't be a safe space necessarily. Because she talks yeah. about basically how when you're, when you're discussing critical ideas, mm-hmm. when you're talking about colonialism, when you're talking about feminist perspectives, when you're talking about racism in the classroom, right? these very touchy topics and you're trying to bring it in relevant to whatever your material is, like statistics and the eugenics movement. Right. History being primarily white males and women consistently being shut down throughout history and psychology. Right. Like when you bring up those topics along with whatever your content area is, you're going to probably going to get a reaction from students, right? Right. And if you're the instructor who's following her pedagogy where you're constantly engaging students and not only just telling them about this information, but actively, again, as, as you're a performer, bringing them on stage mm-hmm. and wanting to share and vocalize what they're feeling and what their thoughts and relating it to their personal life. Mm-hmm. That can be that some, you're going to get pushback. You might get some people who say some critical things in a negative sense, right? And there's just, there might be antagonism. Right. And so this idea that if you're feeling uncomfortable in the classroom or you might not necessarily be feeling the safe, that that's not a bad thing that's part of the learning process. So mm-hmm. that learning doesn't necessarily always have, doesn't happen in a safe space. 
it happens outside your comfort zone, I think is kind of what she's going for. I buy into that. Yeah. How she phrases it is kind of weird. It's like, do I believe in safe safe spaces? And she's like, no. Yeah. But she talks about the role. And I think I've talked about this for like um, building community or a community of respect. Mm-hmm. That seems to be her go-to. Like if you've done all the work to establish a personalized community where people trust one another, then they can trust one another when they start being antagonistic to not like attack one another. Yeah. But to be vulnerable and actually discuss that pain or discuss these topics in more sense of light without right going for the throat and tearing each other down. Even yeah. though it might be uncomfortable, it might feel like, oh God, I feel awful, you know, or like this makes me feel bad. Yeah. I mean, I often like use that just as like a personal gauge when I'm teaching things. Like sometimes I'm like, ooh, is this going to make, am I going to be uncomfortable like leading this discussion or like talking about these things in class? And like to me, that means you probably should be talking about these things in class, you know, but I can definitely see like instructors like shying away from certain topics or like discussion opportunities because they don't want to feel that way. And I think hooks would go further. Um, and I think we can play a you of they just also, it's the idea of being vulnerable again, right? Yeah. If you let them know that this topic makes you feel uncomfortable and you may not be the foremost world expert. Mm-hmm. Again, I think about the psychology of gender class I taught, right? And when yeah. I'm talking about the female experience, yeah. in particular, like those heavier based lectures. Yeah. Like, I mean, I'm I can thinking... pretend that I know it all yeah. or I can be vulnerable and be like, what do you like you it's it's basically building knowledge and growing along with your students yeah. which i think stu- we've, we've talked about many times before but again it's validating to hear someone externally say that mm-hmm. of like teachers are growing and learning too right like students have their own knowledge base that you might not have access to uh, that is important yeah and i think she makes very and this probably be my last point unless you have any more, but like something that stood out to me is that she's not like blind or ignorant to the fact that some students will abuse this personalized system, right? Mm-hmm. So she'll talk about how students will try to use the classroom as therapy, right? So rather than connecting the academic topics with the personal life, right? Like that would be the ideal goal, right? So it's not just academics, but there's a personal flair to it. Some students see this as an opportunity only to talk about the personal life, Mm-hmm. and personal experiences mm-hmm. and what they go through and want to share all their life stories without connecting it to anything that any core academic topic right yeah. so it almost gets derailed yeah. by that and she's like that's kind of a dangerous thing that students will abuse that sometimes mm-hmm. and you have to learn how to like manage or guide students back of like connecting it to bigger themes or connecting with the rest of the classroom rather than just like have a student take control or go out of control in like a personal sorry um because i she basically highlights how like more and more students as she gets older are seeing therapists and she's like i don't think they want me as a therapist i just think they want someone who actually cares about their teaching yeah right so she's like just because you think that they're having mental health they want to share the classroom you can always guide them to a good resource Mm -hmm. but your your uh your focus as a function as a teacher should always be a personalized space to learn not necessarily personalized space to therapy Yeah. yeah yeah Yeah, that's a really good point. All right. Well, thanks for having this discussion with me today, Jacob. Um, I think Bell Hooks has a lot of great ideas, and I think this is probably going to be one in a series of podcast episodes that we record where we talk about some of her pedagogical ideas. I was going to say we can link the books. Um, So it's actually part of a trio of books. So we were talking about teaching to transgress 
education as the practice of freedom, but Bell Hooks has two others. So I think you mentioned the idea of like, we can go into the other two in the series eventually. I think that'd be awesome. Yeah. So uh, stay on the lookout for some more uh, Bell's Hook Hooks content. <laughs> Did you just finger gun me? Like, yeah. <laughs> this is an audio only puck. We're not doing it. But yeah, she's a doctor, Dr. Cassie Marie Witt is uh i guess is signing us out i hope you all enjoyed the podcast enjoyed season two episode one good to be back good to be back and on that note we're gonna say goodbye 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 beautiful people (laughs) see you in the next one see you in the next one peace hello hello again we just want to thank you one more time for listening to two random weirdos If you want to listen to us ramble some more, we'll be posting episodes hopefully bi-weekly on both Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Fingers crossed. If you want to get in touch with us, we can be found on Twitter and Instagram with the handle at CorruptYouthPod. Or feel free to email us at CorruptingTheYouthPod at gmail.com. Thanks for listening and helping us spread the corruption. Bye. Bye.